0: Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Harry Robinson, Head of Content at Vavil and host of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast and the United Through Time Podcast. In the course of our conversation, we discuss the work of Vavil, the ins and outs of podcasting, and his experiences of working within the media as a young person. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Pod. We haven't sorted out a guest for next week as of yet, but be assured that the podcast will happen. Before that, though, it's Harry Robinson, Vavil, and the art of podcasting. Enjoy. (laughs) I'm joined today by Harry Robinson, Head of Content at Vavil and host of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast and the United Through Time Podcast. Harry, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm doing well. The first question I ask on this podcast is always contextual, so it will be good for the the listeners to get a good sense of how it is that you fit in the football media and what it is you do within it. So give us a little bit of a flavour of what it is that you do in the football media. So
1: I'm a, a very junior member of the football media um, but I started out writing at the age of 12 I think uh, on my iPod Touch to give you a sense of the lack of professionalism in which I was writing uh, a piece about Danny Welbeck and Tom Cleverley becoming the next big thing at Man United which obviously came true um, and then I started a, a website with a few other United fans called footy for all uh, which aimed at providing football content for all people as you may be able to tell from the the title uh, that went okay got a few thousand followers couple thousand views on the, on the website each week and then a website called vavel approached me and asked to become asked me to become the Manchester United editor there uh, when they found out I was 13 they were a little apprehensive <laughs> but <laughs> eventually managed to put those worries to to one side and uh, yeah I've been doing that at Favel for five years as Man United editor and recently uh, I became deputy editor-in-chief I guess is the official title about two years ago and head of content earlier this year uh, which is kind of looking at creating a, a proper style guide making sure we've got quite wide coverage on, on the Premier League mainly in various sports and organising that all and, and accreditation and stuff and then on the podcast side of things do fair amount of that uh, started the Manchester United weekly podcast which is a very basic reviewing matches, looking at matches, talking about Manchester United um, show, started that three years ago and uh, the more recent podcast is one called United Through Time as you said which looks at history, uh, Manchester United's history with one episode on one individual in the club's history. Very detailed, an hour, an hour and a half, looking at their life and their importance to United. And then I've done bits here and there all over the shop, a little bit of stuff at Arsenal, QPR quite a bit. They did a, t- a few days at, at two, and then did some freelance writing for a United website called The People's Person, which was the only paid... Wage I've had in the football media, and uh, I do a bit of stuff about Man United's academy, and some commentary for uh, a company called Live Sports FM. Uh, kind of quite a wide range, and none of it is too dedicated at the moment.
0: Well, I wanted to move on to talk about Vavel but I think before we do that, you've you've mentioned that you're quite young. You are off to university starting next academic year. Yeah. Um. So, and you've said you're quite you're quite junior, but you've obviously covered a huge amount. Done a a, a huge amount of um of work across the the board you've done more than a lot of experienced journalists I know so I'd be interested actually in your thoughts of as someone who's clearly been at the forefront of the football media as it's sort of gone through this explosive change through things like social media and the internet age I've been wondering about what what it is that you think the football media could maybe do better in terms of attracting or approaching uh younger audiences and how you've gone about doing that the very in the various different projects that you've been working in
1: If you're looking at properly young people, uh, younger than me, like 10, 11, entering the early teenage years, then I don't think there's... I I think in the way that I traded match attacks and shootouts with my friends and played FIFA a lot, uh, in the way that probably the generation before me, 90s, were trading Panini stickers and before that, the 60s, 70s, it was like football albums, shoot and match and that kind of stuff. I think the younger generation now, below me, just below me, is um they're attracted by, by YouTube videos. And I don't think that's any different from what we did. It's just a different a different thing. And I think they will grow into the content that I think older generations currently like. Obviously, I think that'll probably be in a different format. I think podcasts are one of those formats. But I think we'll start seeing I think the big thing with the younger generation is is individuals. They like a person on youtube they don't like a channel they like a person uh if you look at uh i mean for me and you if you look at an individual we we like individuals we probably both of us would agree that jonathan Lewis is an amazing writer and if he writes something we'll read that whether it's for the telegraph the times the independent whoever it was for i think for the for the younger generation it's the youtubers and some people kind of look down on those people uh I think that's probably wrong for the younger generation. They like people they see on YouTube. Statman Dave, for example, has now been hired by MUTV, United's official TV channel, to do little videos and he does stuff for the app as well. And they, they, they're not copying him. They're not copying doing a tactics video. They're getting him because it's him who the younger generations like. And I think even more so than before, it's now individuals that the younger generations want to follow rather than an idea talking about tactics someone uh, a match report it's properly they follow individuals the the copper 90 boys for example they're they characters as well as the as the good films that they make so i think that's probably the best way of exploiting that kind of interest
0: mm. so mainly personality driven then
1: yeah and I, I think there's also a space for very i don't want to say professional but very basic uh tweets using social media Every club will now have four or five accounts which are, their tweets look very professional, they follow a very clear format where they do a piece of news, maybe a regular hashtag, and they will put where the sources come from. Now, that's pretty easy to to do, anyone can do that as long as they have enough time on their hands. It's similar to format to what I follow on the academy account that I run which is a very set format so it looks professional and I think people like that because they know if I want this I'm going to go to this account rather than just seeing it come on that up on their tie line they can go over to that account once in a day and think okay I can get all my news from here so there's also a space for that but are they reading do, do I read match reports that often if I if I have a bit of time at breakfast and there's a newspaper on the table then yes if it's from someone I particularly like yes but I won't just read a match report because it's a match report because I can get the highlights on, on Twitter on Sky Sports app or BT Sport app or whatever
0: hmm. No that's very interesting Let's move on to talk about Vavril then Tell us a little bit about Vavil, about the, the sort of ethos behind it. You've obviously been working there for years and years now. As far as I understand, Vavil was started by a Spanish journalist at some point and spread all over the world. And its, it's basic ethos is that it allows younger journalists to get the opportunity to get press box experience. Could you expand on that? Tell us a little bit more about the company itself.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's probably quite a common thing across the vavel edition so but yeah you're right vavel started in spain i think in 2009 uh when i was eight so i was not, not hearing about that at all but yeah i think started in spain in 2009 uh, and they now have editions which have slowly been founded. the uk one started in 2011 i think and they've got an edition in every latin american country uh so mexico colombia Argentina Brazil etc they have a uh, Arabic edition a Nigerian Germany France the US is another big one probably the the four biggest are the US the UK Spain and Mexico probably uh, and yeah they particularly for the the UK edition um the idea is to give young writers a chance to both get into a press box obviously we can't give that to every single writer because we don't know if they're committed so people join and then eventually get the chance to get in a press box and uh it's 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 kind of an experience of a at least a somewhat professional site not a site where you can write a blog piece once every month not a site where you can say i or we etc not not where you are a united fan but instead you are a manchester united writer who is covering the news, covering matches. And uh, it it doesn't pay. And I mean, I've done it for five years without getting any money. And then now I'm in a more senior position. I feel quite guilty that we can't pay people who put a lot of time into it. But it does give some some great opportunities to get interviews with players because it's a relatively big name given what it is and to get into press boxes pretty regularly. Uh, we're recording this and then I'm going to head off to Wembley to see Spurs for I think the second time in three weeks or something and that's not an opportunity I'd get anywhere else to be honest.
0: Tell us a little bit about your job as head of content what does that involve at the moment?
1: It was a uh, a new role at Vavil that began and last summer, when the then editor-in-chief left, uh, because he was too busy and obviously it not being a paid job, it's, it's definitely not full time. Uh, so we created, instead of me becoming editor-in-chief, because I will be going on a fun trip to South America in March. Uh, so we instead created uh, two roles, one of editor-in-chief, but with a slightly less uh, mm-hmm. overall role without having to do everything, because it's quite a big job. And the second role, which is mine, of Head of Content, which was at the start of the season, creating a new style guide, creating a new format for pieces like match reports, match previews, uh, getting rid of the things I thought were pretty futile, like predicted 11s, player ratings, uh, giving some, within that style guide, giving the new writers, uh, particularly the younger ones, like people who, who join at 14, 15, like I did, giving some specific tips on how you write a, a news piece how you write a feature piece how you write any kind of piece and, and making sure that they know that they can ask for advice as well because that's kind of what Vavil is there for in in some way and then head of content now is making sure that that style guide is stuck to and uh at the moment it's uh, one of the next things i'm going to do is try and increase the quality of the stuff we put out in terms of finding something that makes sure we're not just a less good version of the BBC of Sky Sports or the Telegraph etc which is why for example match reports instead of just giving people the freedom to write whatever they want which I think can be great in terms of developing as a writer uh, and it can create an even better article I thought well that's true but why would you come to Vowell to read a match report when you could read it off Henry Winter or Jonathan Liu or, or whoever so we created a a different format where you have a very small introduction, then a section of about 250, 300 words called the story of the match, which is a very, uh, ba- it can be a very basic, uh, just a chronology of what happened in the game. So you can actually know what happened because I think that gets missed out of match reports quite a lot because people focus too much on the context and the story and what the managers said. And then a final section called takeaways from the game, which looks at three or four key, uh, points, bits of analysis that you can take from the game probably a a less quality Uh, it reduces the quality of the match report and and the writing it's less fluid but I think people some people certainly and I think younger people probably want something that's a bit more of an obvious format where you don't have to consume every word but instead you can scroll down to the bit that you want to read whether that's takeaways or the story of the game or the context
0: that's interesting because uh, before the recording, we we had a chat about match reports. Anyway, you've obviously thought a lot about the what the function that match reports have in a society where everyone's watched the game or watched the goals. Anyway, everyone has all the information on their fingertips, and so the old style match report that used to essentially transmit the information about the match now is sort of redundant. So um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear on your thoughts about how Vavil prepares people for the football media now, given the changing face of the industry. We've had the the news yesterday that Copper 90 have laid off all of their US content staff, which doesn't mean that necessarily Copper 90 is in any difficulty, but it clearly suggests something about the state the industry is in. So yeah, the question I would have then is, Vavble is clearly preparing young journalists for uh, a media context which may well have functioned fine twenty, thirty years ago. What are Vavel doing to prepare young journalists for football media in a world with the internet age is is governing everything?
1: It's it's difficult because I think the match report I think people love match reports. Uh, and I was listening to the I think it was the episode with Ryan Bowdy who said, I still love reading match reports. And I like reading good match reports but I don't want to waste my time reading a very pointless only a chronology of the game I don't want to read a match report that is simply an analysis of the game you need to find that that balanced in terms of what we do to prepare writers for what is a a changing industry uh, well I think we more than others focus on making sure that we we maximize what we're doing at the game if we can't get mix zone access which is quite rare for us because we're still starting to, to make the, the name for ourselves in terms of with the clubs usually don't get mixed own access but if you're at the press conference making sure you're covering it uh, not just covering it because it's what a manager said but only if it's actually relevant uh, I think we make sure that we have uh, videos kind of the, the classic selfie videos from before the game sometimes at halftime if it's a particularly big game and after the game Bringing more of a, a multimedia sense into it, which I think is the, the big change for a journalist now compared to even 10 years ago is that you need to be able to produce a podcast, to appear on a podcast, uh, to edit audio, edit video, to take a video by yourself without any production team, to use social media and then also to be able to write fluently and perfectly, which makes it a much harder job um but yeah i think i think mean, a big emphasis on kind of providing more than just the match report not necessarily a quote piece from a press conference because they can also be pretty futile but a one minute video from the end of the game talking about the game talking about the the key lessons we learnt from it and a one minute video in the build-up to the game talking about the team news and from there we're still thinking of ideas of the way to, to really, cause that's the big thing we can offer is getting into the, into the press box. How can you maximize that opportunity and get as much out of it as you can? Well, it's, it's quite difficult. <laughs>
0: It would be interesting maybe to talk a little bit about access. Given that one of my bugbears or one of the things that I talk about quite a lot is the fact that access is constantly being restricted and again that will have an impact impact on the on the football media. What are your thoughts on that and do you think that the that will affect Vavil in any in any sense if, if you are able to get uh, access which could could be closed off in future.
1: Well, just specifically on Vavil to begin with, uh I don't think access is, I think access into a press box is pretty key because it's one of the big selling points for attracting writers. I think access in terms of talking to players is, it would be lovely to have it. At the moment, we're not focusing on it. If we wanted to get some interviews, we probably could get a few. But what is the point of interviewing someone for interview's sake, for having a big name on your website? I'd rather have a, I'd rather build a, a sustainable, Uh, chain of of features that come out regularly of consistent match coverage then occasionally have an interview with this Liverpool player this Arsenal player whatever in terms of access into the press box that's always going to be key I don't think that's really threatened but access generally um, I think well clubs are becoming more closed off I've last week I was had a few days at, at QPR talking to a few players there for their for their club website and that was seeing it from a different side a different point of view for them why would you give the chance to they didn't say this but it's it's obvious why would you give the chance to a journalist from whatever paper to tell this fantastic story of this player when you could have it on your website in video format in an article on your app as a podcast when you can properly decide when it is the player feels more comfortable um and you can take the most advantage of it now is that a problem yes but i think i think i'm not i'm not so sure that losing access to players in terms of a pure interview point of view an actual interview is that bad for the football media i don't think i don't go to a newspaper and see an interview with i think a lot of the the interviews with players in newspapers can be pretty boring I think sometimes you get an amazing story particularly with young players who have just broken through so you don't know their story yet but I think you get those double page spreads in the in the Sunday papers where they've had this nice photo shoot with this footballer in their very nice clothes in their very nice house posing with a with a footballer or in Messi's case a goat <laughs> are they that interesting well I could pro- I'd probably rather read a a double page spread on—I was just reading a good piece by Rory Smith in the in the New York Times about fo- football fans collecting for food banks. That's that's more interesting. That's about fan culture. That is something that I wouldn't—I'd—I'd I'd actively go to the paper to read. If it has an interview with Jesse Lingard, well, I can now get that on the Players Tribune. I can now get that on Manchester United's channel. I, it doesn't really make a difference to me. But the the big thing with access is not having the information, not having the breaking news. And I think it's it's becoming narrower and narrower, the amount of journalists who end up being friends of the club because they write nicer pieces about them. They write nice pieces in, in Manchester United, journalist's case about Ed Woodward and don't criticise him. They're the ones who get the access, who get the breaking news. And that's there's a fine balance between uh, an actual football media and a group of people who are sharing the stories that the club want you to share.
0: Let's move on to talk about the podcast side of things then. So first, your general United podcast, the Manchester United weekly podcast, which does what it says on the tin. Presumably, it's a weekly podcast about Manchester United. <laughs> tell us a little bit about how you got into podcasting because that's the first podcast that you did. You said three years ago. Tell us about how it started, how you grew the market, and and tell us a little bit about what what that podcast looks like structurally.
1: Well, I, the the first podcast I did, I'm can't remember which one it i did about four or five failed podcasts where we had four or five people trying to do it and that was a key issue because finding the time where four or five people are available uh making it sound not like it's a horrendous tinny noise is is difficult and making it interesting is difficult and being consistent. So I had one called uh, "Only Fools and Football." I had one called "Transfer Cast." One called "Bite Size Football," which had a very funny image of Luis Suarez biting Branislav Ivanovich as a as a front cover, which I I liked, but the actual content wasn't very good. And they all sound they all have my very squeaky fifteen year old voice on. Um, but yeah, I'd, then I then I looked at. A United podcast, and I started it with a a writer, Vavil, who was also a United fan and a United writer. Um, And weirdly, had I'd never spoken to him that much. I just said I I literally put a tweet out and said, "Does anyone want to do a United podcast with me?" Hoping that someone that I kind of respected would reply, and hoping (laughs) that no one that I didn't really like would reply, because then I'd be faced with an awkward situation. Thankfully. Only he replied, so I did it with him uh, and it started off pretty, it started off okay um, and we started getting 400, 500 listeners straight away, partly because it has, I think, Manchester United in the name and that means it's high up on the iTunes charts and now the, we looked, we looked for, I, I was looking for a structure that was a bit different because obviously Manchester United being the club that it is has a ridiculous amount of content go towards it. Even three years ago when podcasts weren't as big, it still had four major, like seriously major podcasts that were getting tens of thousands of listens a week. The Rankcast United We Stand podcast just celebrated its five millionth listen. Uh, there were the Stretty News podcast. There, there were so many and I was looking for something that was different and noticed that, uh, the RankCast, which is an amazing show, was an hour, possibly longer, very casual, very funny at some at some points and got some great points on it at some points as well with two pretty passionate United fans. And I instead wanted something because I never really enjoyed listening to podcasts that went hour all in one go, particularly a weekly one. Uh, so I decided to make ours half an hour, which was rounding up the week at United. And that meant having a two or three minute section on news, as if you were having a a news roundup saying this is the transfer news this player said this etc I had a two minute roundup on the youth teams the under 23s and the under 18s and any signings and a two minute roundup on the loan players so United's loanees and how they were doing elsewhere all of that in 30 minutes so also reviewing the game and previewing the next game and it started off okay. It's got more and more professional in the way it's produced. It sounds much better. Um, we now have about 15 minutes of discussion on the matches, the match or matches that have just happened. We then have a five minute youth and loan roundup, then preview the next game. We've scrapped the news bit because it was boring and too long and <laughs> no one actually liked it. Uh, and it was just in there because it sounded a bit like a radio show and it wasn't really needed. So now it's, uh, more, it's a, it's a better podcast now and it's, it's still different to what other people provide because it's shorter and that was the main thing we were going for is to be concise rather than dragging out this really casual slow conversation that went on to loads of things and that probably means it's partly probably because we're less funny than the people that present the other shows it's partly because we're not at the games all the time um but it's different and that's i think that's the key with a podcast
0: a couple of questions here the first one being about the 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 concept of aiming at niches you've told me that you your, your academy stuff does really well and you have a separate academy twitter feed right which is it's just been very popular um So I'd be, one of my, uh, one of my theories about football media is that because of ad revenue, we've had to sort of scattergun approach everything. You have to try and get as many clicks as possible. And so you try to aim for everyone. Uh, Whereas actually it's much more beneficial, it seems to me, to aim for niches. Um, And that seems to be the case in, uh, with respect to your academy stuff. So what do you think about niches and and tell us a little bit about this, the the coverage of the academy stuff that you've done?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think I realized probably two or three years ago that if I had a niche, that was the way I was going to have a future as a football journalist in any kind of any kind of way. Um, and I think going back to the point earlier about younger generations, including mine, following individuals rather than websites or trusted sources, I think if you become the individual who is known as the person who knows about the academy, you're pretty much set because there could be four people who know about the academy. If all four of them are big names, you're still all four of you are going to have a big following so i started the i'd i'd always followed youth football a lot i covered england's youth sides quite a lot which came in handy when we had a very good year in 2017 because i'd been following those players for a couple of years and then you start getting asked by other sites to to write about it and it, it it's very useful because they are the next big thing um the academy man united account does much better than anything else i do it's got 8000 followers it gets about 15000 hits on the website Every week and i haven't published anything on it for eight months um purely because of the name of manchester united's academy um so in terms of in terms of niches going back to the actual question uh i think i think that's pretty much the key for any individual as for advertising in the industry i think it can be hard to find advertisers if you're if you have a niche you are an individual but if it Talking about podcasts as well, podcasts are much more trusted than, than any other form of media. So you're going to get, if you're an advertiser looking at a podcast, you know that you can trust that podcast to bring you customers because people trust the the people who present the podcast they listen to. Obviously, the, the hard thing is if you run a podcast, produce a podcast like I do, and obviously you do, um, finding those advertisers. So I think in the, in the future... In podcasts particularly, but also in more niche stuff, there will be someone who will have to create a company who finds specific sponsors for each podcast. You have a network of podcasts. You have a network of websites that have particular niches. You let them do their thing. You find the advertising. You find the sponsors. That company will take it to cut, and the podcast producers, the website producers, the newsletter producers, whatever, the video producers will take most of it. Uh, and make a fair amount of money you see live events with podcasters are popular people people really trust and like the people who present the podcast that they listen to and that is kind of a niche because almost every podcast is a bit of a niche apart from the main football ones like the totally football show football weekly etc
0: the other question I had was more about the idea of, you've mentioned it already, the fact that you aren't going to every Manchester United game and yet you've got this podcast um, that that covers Manchester United in quite uh, extensive detail. I've also mentioned that you're going to university, you're heading up towards Manchester to go to university. Do you think that will change the the podcast? Will you carry on doing the podcast? But do you think if you do carry it on, carry it on will it be better by you being closer to the club or not?
1: I, I don't think necessarily. I think it's possible that it could improve because you can have clips from from games you can have interviews with fans but is that what people want from my podcast probably not they they want the same thing every week which is two fans who have watched the game in detail have prepared some analysis on it have something to say they're not just talking randomly there are podcasts out there from genuine mancunians who provide a much better insight into united fan culture than i do and there's no way that me being at manchester uni can pretend to emulate that the united we stand podcast which is the the podcast related to one of united's fan scenes same for red news and the other fan scene both of those podcasts are recorded at the games by fans who have been following united for 30 40 years there's no point trying to, to copy their idea because it will undoubtedly be worse. There might be clips from the games. I might do a little video from each game. But will that podcast change as much? Probably not. Will the Academy account be affected? Probably quite significantly, yes, because it's much easier to attend Academy games because I'll be much nearer. I can an hour hour and a half on public transport and could be watching every United under 18 game rather than five or six hours, which is obviously why I haven't done it. Um, So I think it will impact it, but I think obviously more and more, you don't really need to be at games to be able to have a view on it, to even be able to write a match report on it. You don't need to be at the game.
0: So finally, we're going to move on to talk about your history podcast, which is a fairly recent venture by you. So United by Time is a history of, of Manchester United told through, is it 25 most important people at the club?
1: It's, it started off as a, a top 25, it's crept up to a, a top 30, but I might try to bring it back down to 25, <laughs> we'll see.
0: <laughs> well, now that you've actually started making the podcast, because it really is a labour of love from what, from what I've heard you talk to me about it. Let's start off at the beginning though, why did you decide to come up with a documentary style podcast and what were the influences and inspirations of that decision?
1: Uh, I started to think about it because uh, I'm doing history at uni, I'm having a gap year, My mind is going to be absolutely frazzled by the time it gets to uni. So I thought I could do something that links history, that ties history and football together. Uh, I've done a lot on football history before and and really enjoyed it. A couple of long reads pieces when I was 14, 15, not very good quality, but some good information in there. Uh, And I also... I'm not doing a standard cafe job or or pulling pints. So I have a fair bit of free time because I'm writing, coaching, tutoring, whatever. So I've got the free time to be able to have a quite dedicated uh, hobby. Not quite a hobby, but there we go. Um, And I wanted to tie history and football together to keep up the historical research skills, etc. So I initially thought of doing a special on the club's history uh, decade by decade, which is I think I must have got the idea from... The Wizards of Drivel podcast, uh, the Stoke City one. I assume I got it from there, or I thought about it, and then they did it, and it only re it only confirmed my view. I can't remember which way round, but who knows. And that was going to be for for the Manchester United weekly podcast, a few specials because I've done a few specials on there on the on the academy on Old Trafford atmosphere. But then I thought of doing a separate one. And I thought of doing individuals rather than decades because I'd researched a man called Louis Rocky in depth before, about two years before, and never written about him. I lost all my notes on him when I looked for them, but remembered how fun he was as a character, how amazing his story was, and thought, individuals, you can properly get into detail in these little stories that make content interesting, rather than skipping over 10 years in a quick time in an hour even even an hour is not enough for for 10 years to be able to find those little stories that make people laugh make people uh upset make people have some kind of emotion so that it came about like that
0: is there any particular like history podcast that you've listened to before that you sort of styled it on or was it were you just sort of make it up as you go along uh
1: not really <laughs> i it, it really was make it up as you go along i i wrote the script going back to the first episode i'm about to p- Uh, start recording episode 3 I'm still reviewing the script but going back to the first episode uh, I recorded and edited the entire thing, wrote the script recorded it, edited it, had it ready to go up and that was in October and then decided to change the format very slightly and to make it to try and make it slightly more enticing at the start to add a bit of drama to it uh, and did that and it took an extra month obviously i was the only person who was desperate to get it out everyone else was kind of didn't really know about it so i was sitting there desperate to get it out and stuff but obviously no one else really cared but eventually did get it out and then i've stuck with that style and i think it works pretty well it's not it's not some kind of revolutionary style it's pretty much in chronological order apart from a bit at the start which jumps usually to the the death of the person sometimes to a specific event a specific story um and then it goes back to their background and carries on going through their life and their, their links to Manchester United. Um, but the, in terms of the, the production side of things, it takes a little bit from certain five live specials I've heard on the BBC in terms of having, having a number of different voices, making sure it sounds pretty good and having sound effects, clips here and there, that kind of thing.
0: Why did you decide to do this as a podcast and not, say, a blog or, or even video media?
1: For someone who writes a lot about football, I don't love reading about <laughs> football that much. I, I, I love reading about football to a certain extent, but I think, I think everyone loves reading, say, three or four pieces a day. People do not like reading a 10,000-word piece on this one man in Manchester United's history. If I, if I saw that, I would stop reading after about 100 words, no matter how good the introduction is. And there are so many blogs. And I don't think you can... I think you can immerse someone in, uh, in, an, in, in a blog, but people just aren't bothered to read 20 books on, on an individual. People aren't... You can't produce a whole united history in, in a certain amount of time. And people can only read so much they can consume much more than they can read though there's so much more potential to because people want to be listening or reading or watching about football pretty much all day every day if they're a certain section of football fans but they can only read for a certain amount of time in the day they can consume a lot more than they can read so it's it's I think you can probably immerse someone in a podcast where you've got those sound effects where you can you can try and make it seem for just a little second like that person has been thrown back to Victorian or Edwardian Britain uh which is what the first few few moments are uh, first few episodes are about and also a podcast is is a good way to show off to to future employers and probably better <laughs> than a blog
0: yeah that's true and let's talk about the planning of the episodes cuz from again from our conversations about it you've spent a huge amount of time researching i, I know that for the current episode that you've read a number of books um and these aren't just you know these aren't just rory smith's books on on or, or jonathan wilson's books on the history of management or whatever this is like proper proper historically dry books um so it takes a huge amount of preparation so it t- talk us through that process
1: yeah you called it a labor of love earlier it is um it, it's a it's a long process and in a way bitten off more than i can chew um because it's an episode a month and if it was an episode every 2 months could smash that out easily uh but a month is is putting the pressure on because you're still trying to promote the one you've just published but also you're trying to prepare for the next one straight away so uh the process starts with with research um the list is already decided i've i have my list of of the top 30 or top 25 most important individuals so it's not a matter of deciding who to do. That's decided, but research starts, uh, probably takes about a week or two weeks, uh, reading the books I have on United, going to the British Library, reading, probably doing two days at the British Library, maybe a day if it's, if, if you're lucky. Um, obviously it's harder when it's someone who hasn't had the book written about them specifically. The second episode was someone who had a biography written about them. And that was pretty easy in terms of research because I just copied that book pretty much and did it into a podcast. It gets harder. The one I've just done, someone who's barely ever had anything written about them, let alone a book. So I've read, I think I took out 20 books at the British Library over two days and I've read five or six, not not cover to cover, but like skim read and taken a lot of information out five or six of my own books. Uh, online stuff, pieces people have written, the British newspaper archive, searching names. Uh, some names are easier than others because some people have very basic names like Davies, which doesn't help. Uh, and then, so that's a, a two week process. Then you've got interviews with authors, relatives, journalists, historians. That'll take a week if you organize it properly. And then the script is, is the longest and the, the hardest stage. That's 10 to 15,000 words of, pure writing uh, which is a yeah it's a it's a long process and it takes probably takes a week to write it if you have a lot of free time and then it needs editing three or four times partly because you keep finding new information so I finished the script this time just finished it and then found a new book which had some stuff I needed so I ordered that then in, put that information in I'm now on the fourth edit of this script about to finish it hopefully and then the it, get, it gets fun after after you've done the script so the research is fun the script is long then the recording is is easy and fun even if my mouth gets quite dry recording for two hours straight and then the editing is it takes about a week it's difficult quite a lot of audio to to put together uh to make sure the quality is good but it's fun because you're hearing what you've been researching for so long come alive and then the last stage is is promotion which is partly the hardest part because you have to stay dedicated to that episode while also researching the next one and then you still have to be pushing the one you've just done and that's probably something i failed to do
0: so that you said 25 to 30 Figures in the history, and then ten 000 to fifteen thousand words per person. Yeah, you do realize like that in terms of word length, that's like three volumes of <laughs> books. <laughs> so yeah. that's a huge amount of of content that you're producing. So I, I think, yeah, you know, you should be you should be pretty impressed with with what it is that you're actually doing here, because I think there's not a lot of people who could do that just off their own bat like you're doing. Final question on this, on this area. Do you think football history is, is an area to be mined in terms of the football media? Do you think there's enough content being produced in this area? And if there is or isn't, do you think that's got anything to do with the, um, re- reflective interest on, on that topic of the topic of football history?
1: I think there's a lot on football history, but I think there's a lot at the moment because there is so much football history that you can write about rather than, people actually maximising what they could do with it. You see you see a lot of it on uh, These Football Times. Uh, you used to see it on In Bed with Maradona. Some of it in, in Mundial. Uh, you see a lot of it in fanzines. Uh, I'm producing something now for one of the United fanzines and have done before. It's a bit on TIFO football. And the thing is, fans love football history and they want to know but won't be bothered to read the 20 books that I've read. And no one... there's there's very rarely going to be a book which can give you football history. Just football history It's always going to give you something more specific, too much detail or too little detail. It's either going to be a history of the, talking about my club, the whole of Manchester United. Jim White wrote a great book on called Manchester United, The Biography. It sums up United's history pretty well in 300, 400 pages, but it's not enough detail, even though it's really well written and has some great stories in it. But then you get a book, like uh, a recent one on United's captain during the late 1800s early 1900s which is so detailed that I loved it I think a lot of people loved it but for some people it's just a bit too much and that the thing with football history is there are just some great timeless stories and I think the best way to tell them is is probably podcasts because you can immerse people and as I said people don't have that much time to read but in terms of in terms of using football history as more content I think it's worth doing just because every fan likes to read about the history of football because it's so interesting and it's going back to the point about access earlier where maybe we're going to get less player interviews we're going to get less breaking news less reliable sources well why not exploit everything that's happened over the last 150 years in football where you've got these stories particularly from the early stages which have never been told You have these stories which are are, are full of entertaining characters, of uh, emotive events, all of this that is just not being tapped into because these are pieces which you can put up on on your website, in your magazine, on your podcast, and people will listen to, read, or consume for the next three years. That is a constant source of, if if you're going off the uh, advertising-based model of revenue, that is a constant source of clicks. It's not a sudden burst of a hundred thousand clicks, but it's gonna be maybe fifty thousand over two years. and if you have enough of that great content and these these amazing stories which people just don't know exist, you are gonna gonna pull people in
0: well harry i've I've kept you for far too long it's been very exciting talking to you i've enjoyed it very much but the final question on this podcast is always about the future how do you answer the question what do you think the future of football media is and how do you see yourself fitting within it
1: i mean we've we've spoken about this very on a basic level at some of the the football media meetups um and we, we mentioned it a bit earlier about uh individuals for me it's trusting what James Tucker says about United because he's reliable for Arsenal fans. It's probably trusting David Ornstein for what he says about Arsenal because they know he's reliable. So there's there's that side so I think individuals is the big thing. Um for us it's it's those people who we can trust. For some people it's the the YouTubers like Statman Dave who I mentioned earlier, like the Copper Ninety boys like Ellie Mengem and, and those kind of people. Um and the hosts of, of fan T V channels that people f- for some reason seem to love. So for, for me, uh, as someone who wants to be a, a, a full-time football journalist after I've left uni, it's about finding that niche, which means that I can't be copied, I can only be bought by a company and used, which I think is what Statman Dave managed to do. He has now been bought by MUTV, Squawk or whoever. So... Yeah, it's about, you have to find something which people can't copy and do better or worse. Doesn't matter. You just have to find something that only, only you can do, only you can provide. People only want to see from you. And obviously on, on this, you always talk about the, the, about paywalls, about people paying for their stuff. And the truth is people will pay. They pay for Sky. They, a lot of them pay for the Times. Liverpool fans pay to hear the, I think it's the Anfield Index podcast, and possibly the Red Men too. United fans pay for bonus content from the from the Rankcast podcast. People still buy fanzines, and not just because it's tradition. People buy things, people pay for things that they think they can't really live without. That's why people still pay for Sky and for BT Sport because they can't live without having the football, the highlights. That is the the very basic level. You have to create something that people feel they cannot live without. And for example, if you took Fantasy Premier League and now said you have to pay one pound a week to to play this, I think a lot of people would pay that, and people would carry on playing. Then that's fifty-two pounds a year. This, I mean, football has seen enough exploitation of of the fans, but there, there is from a from a very selfish point of view, there is so much more left to do in terms of just absolutely stealing everyone's money, <laughs> but. By giving them giving them things that they want that they can't live without, and I think if you do provide good content, it's about making sure that people can't get that elsewhere. The problem at the moment is someone who pays for Mundial might love what they see on these football times, but they wouldn't pay for that as well unless they have a large amount of disposable income. So you have to be the one, the one that people pay for, the one that gets there first.
0: I. Always ask at this point what's the best way for people to follow you. I suspect you've probably got quite a few different Twitter handles to, to push at this point. <laughs>
1: I'll give you only one, and then people can, if they're desperate, find the podcast from there because they're in my Twitter bio. Uh, but yes, there are I have far too many Twitter accounts, and they take up far too much of my day. Um, but on Twitter, you can follow me at Harry Robinson sixty four. Don't ask where the 64 comes from because I've forgotten.
0: <laughs> Harry, thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Cheers. It's been good.
0: Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another fascinating guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.